You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. So we are in the book of Galatians. So if you want to turn with me, you can also turn to this green sheet that is in your bulletin. This is the sermon outline for today. Um, I do this every week for our people so that they can follow along if they would like. And then on the back of that green sheet, next, next uh, in, in a few, few months, um, we're going to start a study on the book of Ephesians. And what we're going to do is we're going to put the whole church, like every connection group, every small group, we're going to try to um, have them studying those kind of deeper study questions from the sermon on Sunday. And so that's what's on the back of this. I'm practicing now so that we can, um, so that I can get practice doing this. I, I did this once before and then I stopped doing it, but we're gonna go back to that. So if you wanna go home and you, know, you, you feel the desire to go a little deeper in Galatians chapter three, here it is. You can go a little deeper um, by yourself or grab a buddy and uh, study up. Um, that would be wonderful. So I have a few questions to start off the sermon this morning. They're not going to be on the screen. They're just going to be questions that I want you to think about. And then eventually Lenny is going to come up and read the scripture passage for us um, when I get to that point, And we'll, we'll, we, we, we will. <laughs> Would you rather go through each day knowing that God loves you or would you rather go through each day having to earn God's love for you? Don't answer that. <laughs> Just think about it. Think about it. Where we would all rather go through life knowing that God, while we would all rather go through life knowing that God loves us, we are all prone to live in the exact opposite of that question. We're prone to practice of our lives as if we earn it. That somehow by what God does or by what we do, God loves us more or less. Or worse than that, we put that on others and preach that they need to clean up their lives before they can become a part of God's family. All the point, all the whole while, not understanding that when was the last time you fished in the Schuylkill River and you pulled one out that was already frozen and in a white paper? God doesn't ask us to clean up, then come into the family. Hopefully, coming into the family cleans us up. We tell people that if they just stopped arguing, their family would be better. We give advice that if they just went to church more often, their lives would be better. As if arguing less or going to church is more is going to change their heart. Look, I'm all for church attendance, like what pastor wouldn't be. But if it's just about church attendance, it has nothing to do with your heart. But it's not that they need the powerful promise of the, it's, it, it, it's, it, but it is not they need the powerful promise of the gospel. 
That's where the heart changes, and that's where life is fulfilled. That is the difference between living by faith and living by the law. This is what we've been discussing. A lot of what today's sermon is going to be is a little bit of review, but there's going to be some new things as well. Living by faith means living in the love of God, being so overwhelmed by the fact that God loves us that our hearts are transformed and our lives are changed. In other words, we don't come to church to check it off. We come to church because we love the person who died for the church. That's the difference. Folks who follow the law come to church because they want to check it off because it's a part of their checklist, because if they don't, somehow God won't love them as much. Folks who come to church with the heart of, of the fact that, hey, I love the man who gave his life for the church, and I consider his bride very important, and I want to be a part of it, are folks who follow the gospel. Today we're going to continue our study of the book of Galatians. What Paul has been doing here is he's been defending the gospel of, gospel of grace with the legalist in the church. And in many ways, that speaks to how God's love changes us. So in Galatians chapter 3, started with Paul helping us to see that we received the Holy Spirit through faith, not by observing the law, and now we will see why the promise of the gospel is greater than the law. But I want to just kind of back up for one minute and give you the, the, the gist of what's going on here. So the Galatian church... The church, the, the, the letters written to the Galatian church are not just written to one church. It would not be like writing a, a letter to the faith church. It's written to all the churches in Galatia. So this isn't just one church. This is, this is many different churches, and it's passed around. So the Apostle Paul has written this letter. And here's why he wrote the letter. And you're going to hear some passion in his voice when Lenny comes to read the Scripture passage this morning. Because... The, he's so passionate because these, these people called the Judaizers came in. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to add to the gospel salvation. Like they wanted to tell Jews, hey, you might be saved, but you got to do Jewish things in order to be saved. And they wanted to do the same thing with the Gentiles. You got you to gotta do Jewish things. In particular, it was circumcision that was what they were held up on. And so they were telling Gentile men, listen, you might be saved by the gospel, but in order to be truthfully saved, you got to do this one act. You got to follow the kosher laws. You got to make sure you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. And the problem that Paul has with this is because in Jesus, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Not through the Jewish laws. Not through the things that we make important, right? And we've discovered that there are churches that believe that, you know, how much water you have in your baptismal matters. They make it about ridiculous things. And the Apostle Paul is passionate. And he's actually kind of mad. 
not kind of, he is mad. Because these Judaizers have taken this church that was doing wonderful things with just the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and turned it into a fiasco. He uses words like, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, this is ridiculous how fast they've changed you. He actually uses words like bewitched. They bewitched you. They cast you into a spell. This is how much it's changed you. And so in Galatians chapter 3, in the second half, he's going to use some examples, and he's going to talk about why the gospel is greater than law. And so, Lenny, come and read for us here at this microphone. And I'm going to ask everyone to stand in honor of the reading of the scripture this morning, if you could. This is something we do at Faith Church to honor the word as it's being read. So, Lenny, go ahead and read, please. This is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 24. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has looked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> so in his defense of the gospel of grace, Paul continues to answer their questions. In chapter 3, he answers these, he, answers, he gives uh, examples of the Old Testament of Abraham. The Jewish legalist would have understood that Abraham came before Moses and the law encountered that the law, Moses came 
as completion of God's promise through Abraham, the legalist would have certainly asked him, if salvation is by faith, if salvation is by faith, then why did God give us the law at all? You see, you and I live in a day of license, and I get asked this same question all the time. Most people in our culture want to know what kind of God gives us a law that he knows we cannot keep. He knows it. In the process of answering the question, Paul speaks to the greatness of the promise of the gospel by grace through faith and the weakness of salvation by keeping the law. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. The first part of this, the greatness of the promise of the gospel. It's found in verses 15 through 18 that Lenny just read for you. So we're going to kind of, um, you can go to the next slide. Here's what it, here's what it says. I'll, I'll read it for you again. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to you, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God. Here's what Paul is doing right now. Let me just break for just one second. He's saying you are so focused on Moses' law, but you have forgotten the foundation that was laid on Abraham's law. Just because law comes 430 years later doesn't mean we wipe out the law that was there to begin with. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. These verses help us to logically defend the gospel. Here's the first point on your sermon outline. The promise of the gospel is great because it's unchangeable. It's unchangeable. The term Paul uses speaks of a a binding agreement like a contract today, but it's even a, a more binding agreement. Ordinarily, in a covenant, there are responsibilities for both parties. In ancient days, the two parties would make an agreement and seal it with a ceremony. In Genesis 15, you can see what this looks like. It lays it all out for us. We're not going to go there this morning, but you can see one. They would sacrifice animals. They would split them. Now, if you have a stomach that can't take this, sorry, but I got to tell you, split them into equal parts and place them opposite of one another. Both parties would have skin in the game. Then the two parties would walk between the sacrifices a promise that they would hold to the covenant. Or what would happen? They would be torn like that animal that they're walking between. It's powerful that they would hold to that covenant. But in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't make any promises. Only God makes a promise. Then the two parties would, again, 
Um, well, excuse me, jump back there. And he argues from the logic that we all know. Since Abraham and God are listed on the covenant, a third party, Moses, can't show up and change or add to the binding nature of the covenant. Catch it? So the Judaizers are pushing Moses' law, Moses' law, Moses' law. And Paul, being a, a wise man, says, hey, wait, 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 time out. We can't skip to Moses' law without looking at Abraham's law. And if we look and do a quick study of Genesis 15, Abraham isn't promising anything. God is. And so that means that Moses can't come skipping down the, skipping down the, the avenue in his sandals and whatever else and make changes to that covenant because it's unchangeable. It's sealed. It's between God and Abraham. And so you Judaizers that are saying, well, Moses' law, no, Moses' law doesn't overextend Abraham's covenant. It's very important to the story. But the promise of the gospel is also great because it is fulfilled. Verses 16 and 17 talk to you about that. I'm going to read them. They're not going to be on the screen. But the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God thus do away with the pro- and thus do away with the promise. See, here's what Paul's speaking to, the promise given to Abraham and his seed, that is Christ. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't change the original promise at all. From the time of Adam's sin, salvation has always been by faith alone. The key to understanding the Bible and our salvation is written to us in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Listen to what he says to Ab- what the Lord says about Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, in order to know that, we gotta, we gotta get out of this Christianese, and you know, we throw words around like righteousness and justification and all those words, and let's define it. Righteousness is what is necessary to be accepted by God. It is what it is. And self-righteousness is impossible for us because we all sin. We covered that last week, remember? We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can bring ourselves to a place where we can stand before God and be accepted by him in and of ourselves. Forget the cross behind me. If we move that cross off a stage and in the back room, there's no cross. There's nothing offered for you. You cannot in and of yourselves teach a good enough Sunday school class. You can't lead a good enough life. You can't preach a good enough sermon to be standing before God and him saying, you're good. Our righteousness can only come to us by faith in Jesus who paid for our sin and gives us his righteousness. Fulfilling the promise. 
Paul states that the law given to Moses in no way changed the promise given to Abraham and was fulfilled when Christ died on a cross similar to this one. So first, it's unchangeable. Moses can't come hopping down. You can't come hopping down. I can't come hopping down the lane and say, we're going to change all the, you know, it'd be, like, it'd be like a youth pastor playing a game with a bunch of kids, and they just keep on changing the rules. I've done this before. It's frustrating for the kids. Oh, that's a goal. No, that's not a goal. That's a goal. That's, you know, that's not a goal. And, and you just keep on changing the rules, and it's, it's teaching them a lesson of how frustrating it can be when people just change the rules on you. God's not that sick. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He says, Moses can't come down the lane and change the rules, and, and, and Pastor Brett can't change the rules, and no one else can change the rules because this was set between Abraham and I, fulfilled through the cross in the new covenant. The promise of the gospel is great because it rests on God. I want you to catch this in verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. There's a lot of talk going on back and forth here, and Paul argues that the promise is great because it doesn't rest on Abraham's ability, and it doesn't rest on your ability to keep it, but on God's. I say it all the time, and you should probably say it all the time, too, that if my salvation or my sanctification depended on my ability to bring it about, whoo, I'd have an issue. If it's about what I do to bring on my growth in my relationship with Jesus Christ, we, we got a problem. Now, of course, there are things that we have to do, and this is where it gets, it gets, it gets uh, a little dicey, and some people say, well, but, but, but I can't just sit around and not do anything and grow in my relationship. You are correct. You need to spend time in his word, but what drives that time in his word? That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. For the Judaizers, what would drive the time in, his, in the word would be that they got to check it off. It's part of what I got to do. I got I to gotta spend time in his word, so I got to check it off. But not for us. We should want to spend time in his word because we love the one who wrote the word. Because our hearts desire to get to know him better. The denomination's purpose statement is to know Christ and to make him known. And a lot of churches have... You know, we, we didn't do this, but some churches just stole that one and said, that's what we're going to do. It's a beautiful statement because that is what, we are de what the desire of our hearts should be. But it's not because my mom and dad told me 40 plus years ago that this is what I should do. 
It's not because I want to check something off on a, on a list that says, I got my devotions done this morning, God, now you can love me fully. No, it's because he did this. And you had nothing to do with it. He didn't look at you coming out of your mother's womb and say, that's one special kid. I think I'll give him all my blessings. There was nothing that attracted you to him or him to you. But he gave it all. And so your salvation is not banked on whether you do perfect with devotions as much as I want you to do perfect with devotions. Or even church attendance as much as that hurts my soul to say. It's what you've done with him here. That's the clear gospel. If, if I can get you to see how important what he did here is, I don't have to put in the bulletin 16,000 times that you can serve in these ways. Because this should be enough. See, see, people who are frustrated and tired are usually frustrated and tired because they're doing it to keep up with the, with the love of God. Usually. I know I can fall into that trap, but listen, I, I'm nothing but straight up with you every Sunday morning. And there are times I fall into this trap. Gotta do, gotta do, gotta do, because at the end of the day, God will not be happy with me if I don't do. He already did. I don't have to do to prove my salvation or to get more love. And so what happens when you're in that law standpoint where, oh, I can earn this, I can earn this, you get involved in things and then you get frustrated and you quit. Because you're doing it to earn something that you don't have to earn. If you would just do it out of the love for the fact that he died on a cross for you. Do you see the difference here? It doesn't rest on me. I can't tell you how freeing that is for a pastor as a, as a pastor who acts sometimes like the church rests on him. And I'm reminded, none of this rests on me. He, he already paid for it. I still got to do my part. I still got to work, work hard because I work unto the Lord. I want people to see that God's glory is great, that things are moving, that the gospel is, is powerful, and all those things. I still got to do those things. But it doesn't rest on me. And the Galatians were feeling this. This is why freedom, if you go onto, onto internet and just type in the book of Galatians, you're going to see the word freedom all over the place. Because they were, they were stuck in slavery. 
Because the Judaizer said, you got to follow all these laws plus no Jesus. Wait. That's not freedom. It's not really freedom when you're doing it because you think you're earning something. It's freedom when you're doing it purely out of the fact that someone loved you enough to die on the cross for you. That's freedom. So God didn't leave it up to us to earn either one. But through his power, we are made new in Christ where I cannot keep all the law to be righteous. God cannot fail or yeah, fail in his keeping of his promise. So our faith in God rather than so it's our faith in God rather than ourselves. Living by the Spirit, as well as we'll see in chapter 5, is the only way we can grow into the son or daughter of the king. So we get that's the Holy Spirit, and that's the only way we can grow. That is our hope. That is why we live by faith in the promise rather than by keeping the law. That's the only hope. Now, after showing the great nature of the, of the promise of the gospel, he also argues the weakness of the law. And so the Apostle Paul kind of shifts the gear. And he says, look, I, I want to show you how great the promise of the gospel is. Remember, the gospel being that Jesus Christ paid it all. We don't owe anything. He paid it all. He, pay, he paid a debt, um, as the old song says, that we cannot pay back. It's impossible. And so when we get caught in that mindset, that's why we get frustrated because we can never do enough to pay him back. We can't. And so we, we get caught in a mindset of, when we get caught in that mindset of trying to do that, it gets frustrating. And it really, what it does is it handcuffs our hands behind us. And we have no freedom because we're trying to pay something off that we cannot pay. It doesn't change him a one iota. It doesn't give us more love. If you can picture a kitchen sink and you turn that kitchen sink on, and this is the picture that was given to me years ago, and I still remember it. Turn that kitchen sink on and let that water run. It runs at the, unless your neighbors are doing something crazy, it runs at the mostly at the same spout, out of the same amount of water, just keeps on coming. When you do good deeds, Christ doesn't turn up the spout for grace. He's already got it pouring out. When you do a good deed, he doesn't pour on a little bit more love. He's already got it pouring out. He's not sitting there with the hands on the, on the faucet, and some of us believe it. We believe this is what God is doing. He's sitting there with the hands on the faucet. Oh, you didn't do your devotions this morning. Oh, you did now. It's not the way it works. When you know him, when you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, the faucet's turned on. Grace is new every morning. Mercies are new every morning. There's nothing I did to deserve it. 
fact, I, I like what this one comment that I see on Facebook a lot, and it, you know, sometimes Facebook, you can take it or leave it, but this is a good comment. I have given Christ countless reasons to turn the faucet off. And he's left his hands off of it. I've given him countless reasons to say, you know what, Brett? I'm done with grace. And he stands there with his hands like this. You get it. Because you know me. Not because you keep up with appearances. So we go on to the weakness of the law now. Now he shifts gears. In verses 19 through 20, here's what he says. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred, um, referred had came. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And so he, he, he kind of turns the gears here, not kind of, but he does, and he, and he wants us to see a few things about the weakness of how the law works. Number one, it's weak to fix sin. The law is weak to fix sin. Look at that. Why then was all the law given? It was added because of transgressions until, unto, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Paul answers the logical questions that the legalists would have asked. If that promise was so great, then why did God give us the law? They would have held that the law makes us righteous. But Paul argues that the law was added to reveal the depth of our rebellion. You know that frustration you feel when you don't get it right? That's the job of the law. When you're trying to do your self-righteous thing and, and get yourself to a point where you are, you are righteous before God, you are standing right before God, and you forget about Christ, and you get frustrated, you know the time. You know it's usually January 1st, <laughs> Right? I mean, maybe you're not as pious as I am, but sometimes on December 31st, this is the year. I'm going to keep up with that Bible reading. I'm going to make sure I pray every day. I'm going to make sure I do this. I'm going to make sure I do that. And January 1st comes and you fall flat on your face. Maybe I did my Bible reading, but I didn't do my prayer. Maybe I did my prayer, but I didn't do my Bible reading. And you get so frustrated. That's because the law is there to make you understand you can't live by the law. You need help to fix your sin. You can't do it on your own. Now, that's hard for some red-blooded American men, me included, because I like to fix things on my own. Well, most things. You don't want me fixing certain things. But I want to fix it on my own. I want to get it done on my own. But Christ asks us to be dependent on him. The law doesn't make us sinners. It simply reveals what, that we are sinners. I, I want you to do a test sometime 
for me. Now, you don't really have to do this, but just try this one time. And this is kind of how my brain thinks. This could be dangerous. So I was in an accident a couple of weeks ago. Car was destroyed. Found a new car yesterday, getting in on Tuesday. But all that to say, when you're in an accident, you begin to start thinking about, you know, the rules of the road. <laughs> and so you start following the rules of the road that you might have slipped up on a little bit before then. Try sometime. Drive the speed limit and find out what the law says about other people. Just drive the speed limit. Not one mile over. Put the cruise control on on a 35 and a 35. And watch how many people let you know that you are the reason their life is horrible. It's the law. There's no promise of the five-over rule. I mean, we've all heard about it. But if a police officer wants to be technical, he could pull us over in 36 and a 35, if he wants to. But it's shown me that the law doesn't mean much to people. I've done this for a week now going to my basketball practice. And it wasn't because I was speeding. It was at a four-way stop I had in my accident. So don't go out of here saying, Pastor has a speeding problem. That is not the case. I was going all but three miles per hour when I had my accident, and that still destroyed my car. All right? So that's not the issue. But I just, you know, it just made me think, like, you know, I've been getting a little, you know, let's get there. And I've been a little heavy on the foot. And so for basketball practice, I've been driving the speed limit, every road I'm on, on the dot. I said to Michelle the other day, I said, you know, I'm learning something about this Galatians series through my driving. She kind of looked at me weird. That's nothing new. And I said, the law isn't really wanting to be followed. I get told how I can go to heaven every day I drive to the basketball. They point and tell me, you can get what I'm getting at. They tell me I'm number one. They yell at me. They blink their horns. Or not blink their horns, they pull their, push their horns. They blink their lights at me. As if I'm oblivious to the fact that I'm going the speed limit. See, the law doesn't make them sin, but the law points out that they are sinners. And so am I. One result of the law is, is that we understand that we don't just do bad things that are wrong in a secular way. But what we do is we rebel against our Creator and are in desperate need for forgiveness for sin. See, me jamming down the gas pedal going down a street at 85 miles per hour in a 60 isn't just rebellion against secular ways. It's breaking his heart. 
See, I don't want my kids to do things because their dad says so and to not do things because their dad says so. I want them to know the father's heart so well that they don't do them because they know they're going to break that father's heart. Because someday I'm going to be gone. And then if they didn't do it because they, were not, they didn't want to break my heart, they're going to say, well, I can do it now. But if I can convince, or not even convince, if I can lead my kids to the point where they understand that when they shout out at their mother or their father, when they get mad and start making ignorant comments, they are breaking the heart of the ultimate father, not just their earthly fathers. Now we're talking. That brings apart heart change. What happened in the church is, is that we have forgotten that when we do things that are not appropriate, we break the heart of God. We somehow believe that we are only breaking the heart of those around us. And we've forgotten about the most important person in the room. See, law doesn't just show us that we do bad things. It shows us that left to ourselves, we're going to break the heart of God. And that should move us to not breaking the heart of God. And that rebellion has spiritual and eternal ramifications. It does. But it all points that we have done nothing to solve our sin problem unless we go to the cross. Unless we bank on the bloodshed on the cross. But the law is also weak due to being temporary. In verse 19, the second half, Paul says this, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The promise is eternal, but the law only came about in history through Moses and faded away when Jesus came. Once Jesus died and rose again, the righteous demands of the law are met in, 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 in him through the Spirit of God. Keeping the temporary demands of the law would not help us meet the perfection of a permanent faith in God's Savior. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Galatians here. He's reminding them that this was just temporary. But it was also weak due to a mediator needed. In verse 20, it says, A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. A mediator represents both parties of the agreement. Thus, the law is inferior because it needs a mediator between two parties. Let me take you back to when the law was introduced. On the mountain, Moses was instructed to keep the people away. You remember the story. There was lightning and thunder and the glory of the Lord. But even with all of that, the people quickly did something. They turned to their own ways. They made golden calves and worshipped them. 
That alone should have moved Israel to faith, but it didn't. That is so unlike the promise given to Abraham. The promise given to Abraham was face to face, friend to friend. A mediator was not needed because it was God alone who was making the covenant promise. That makes the law weak, um, makes the law weak to the promise. Now, as we follow the logic here, the next question that would have come up would have been, if the promise was so much greater, then why did we give both? And the Apostle Paul will answer the logical question, why did God give both? Listen to verses 21 through 24. Here's what it says. In the law, therefore, opposed, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So, what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of his faith, we were held, becoming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So here's what we're getting at. Logically, God cannot contradict himself. And to give two opposite ways to salvation would be contradictory. What was the purpose of the law if it couldn't bring salvation? The law can't save us. We've already read that in 21 through 23. Again, Paul continues with his logical argument. The law can't save us because we can't obey it perfectly. We're always going to mess up. The law can't save us, and the scripture itself declares that we can't keep the law to earn our salvation, Romans 3.23, all fall short of the glory of God. On top of that, our own experience tells us that we can't keep the law. So if we're depending on the law, meaning our own goodness, to be saved, we're up the river. We're doomed. Locked up in the deepest, darkest dungeon awaiting judgment. Thankfully, Scripture doesn't leave us there. The answer? The answer's in verse 24. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Here's what I want you to hear. And I want you to hear Paul as well as myself. The law was given to drive us to the gospel. Faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our sin is forgiven and we are made righteous in him. What an amazing plan. He knew. He knew that Brett Kendig wouldn't be able to figure it out on his own. So he put the law into practice to show me just how far I miss the mark. Not to drive me crazy, not to make me an angry person, but to drive me to the one place where I can find salvation. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Breaking the law reveals our guilt and forces us to the promise of the gospel. I don't know about you, but to me that shows that God is a loving and merciful God. That he doesn't just put something into our road and say, look how far you've fallen. Woe is me. Poor me. But not wanting us to perish, but to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul finishes off chapter 3 with these great words that I... that I would like to read this morning. It's about living in the gospel, making our blood flow a little faster. Here's what verse 26 says. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. If you have a relationship with him, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Belong to Christ, not through the law, but through the gospel of Christ. Not dependent on you, but leaning on his everlasting faithfulness. And it drives us back to Hebrews chapter 10 that says these words. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised when? Way back in Genesis 15. Is faithful. We don't have to doubt his faithfulness. Because he proved it right here. He saw that there was a problem. We can't live up to the righteousness of God. And he solved it with the faithfulness of the cross and the resurrection of his son. It's powerful. It's how God loves us. And yet people come in and they say things like, well, you got to be this, you got to be that. You got to make sure you follow the, the daily um, limits of food that you're allowed to eat, the Jewish laws. And Christ says, no, 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 no. It's not about following the law. It's not about putting it in yourself. It's about what I did. It's powerful. But I want you to hear the words of those Hebrew, that Hebrew author one more time. Do you notice the one big word in that sentence? Unswervingly. To the hope we profess. Not turning from the left to the left or the right. Holding unswervingly to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatian church, stop turning to the right with the Judaizers. Faith church, stop turning to the right and the left of all the hopes and dreams of American nation. And hold unswervingly 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that's going to matter. We just put, we just had one of our congregation members pass away. Pat Williams was about one of the greatest things in life. She had the best outlook on a lot of things. Do you know what Pat Williams, what mattered the most at the end of the time was what Pat Williams did with the cross of Christ, period. It didn't matter how much money she gave. It didn't matter how hard she worked at Unique Pretzels and other places. At the end of the day, this is all that mattered. And it's the same thing that's going to matter for you. And so the writer of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul in Galatians both would say, hold on unswervingly to that cross. Don't you dare turn from the right or the left. Just grab a hold of it. And that would be the desire of their heart. So, Faith Church, let's stop turning to the right and the left. And let's unswervingly hold on to this hope. It's not going to be easy because the world wants us to turn to the left or the right. Because that's the desire of our hearts to turn to the right or the left. But yet the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, this is what leads to true freedom. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 